The George Washington College of Professional Studies Paralegal Studies programs are a proud sponsor of the DC Bar. You'll study with the nation's leading experts and get the critical knowledge and skills you need to enter legal, corporate, healthcare, or government practice with confidence and acumen. Whether you are looking to advance in your career or make a change, GW's academic rigor is matched with hands-on, real-time learning that will help you stand out among your peers and rise to the next level in your profession. To request more information about this program, please visit the link found in the description for this episode. Welcome everyone, and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast made for law students by law students. I'm Andrew Nettles. And I'm Sydney Taylor, and in today's episode, we're going to be exploring various career paths under the expansive umbrella of government ethics, procurement, contracting, and anti-corruption. To learn more about this issue, we're joined today by our guest, Jessica Tilleman. Dean Tilleman is the Assistant Dean for Government Procurement Law Studies at the George Washington University Law School. She serves as co-chair to the American Bar Association's International Anti-Corruption Committee, is a faculty advisor to the Public Contract Law Journal, and is an advisory board member of the government contractor. Dean Tiltman is also the senior editor of the FCPA blog, a leading Foreign Corruption Practices Act resource on the internet. She has also published numerous articles that address legal and policy issues involving anti-corruption, government procurement, white-collar crime, and government ethics law. Last year, Dean Tilletman testified before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform on conflicts of interest in a large corporation's work for the FDA and opioid companies. She frequently organizes and presents at domestic and international government procurement and anti-corruption conferences and colloquia, and her legal commentary has been featured in numerous domestic and international media outlets. Thank you so much for joining us today. So before we brief it, can you tell us about your experience clerking at the U.S. Court of Federal Claims and some of the things that inspired you to begin building your career? Sure, and thank you for having me here today. As you can probably guess, I love this particular topic, given that I've dedicated my career to it, but I'm excited to share uh, some of this information with you. So as far as my career goes, I'll, I'll take a step back before I address exactly the clerkship question, but when I was a law student at GW Law back in the dark ages, I was convinced I was going to be a prosecutor. And so a lot of the activities, whether it was my coursework or the externships that I completed, were really dedicated to trying to achieve that particular goal. Along the way, I met a professor who was teaching something called government contracts. Now, I had never even heard of government contracts. I mean, I guess I assumed the government did have contracts, but it wasn't really something I thought about. And he was looking for a research assistant. His name is Professor Steve Schooner. For any of the GW students listening, he still teaches. Um, but he had just started teaching at GW Law, and he started talking to me about it, and he wound up hiring me as his research assistant. And so for two years at the law school, I started getting exposure both to kind of white-collar crime and criminal law through my externships and coursework, but also government contracts through my work for Professor Schooner. So it was kind of a merging of Two practice areas that weren't necessarily a natural fit at that time. I didn't really see people practicing in this kind of convergence of two practice areas. So I had always assumed I was kind of going to have to pick one or another. But in the interim, before, right after I graduated, I was really honored to receive a clerkship offer following graduation from the Honorable Lawrence S. Margolis, or Judge Margolis, who is also an alum of GW Law School to clerk on graduation. 
the Court of Federal Claims, for students who don't know, that is unique. It has unique jurisdiction. It's a federal court. It's under the umbrella of the Federal Circuit, which any students that are interested in intellectual property should be quite familiar with. But the Court of Federal Claims hears a lot of government contracts cases. It hears takings cases. You know, it has a unique aspect of jurisdiction. And so given my uh, work on government contracts, it was a natural clerkship for me. And frankly, if students are interested in that, it's a wonderful, wonderful court to both intern at or also clerk with after graduation. And it's, of course, a federal court in Washington, D.C., right by the White House. So after clerking, I wound up going to work for a law firm in Washington, D.C. called Jenner and Block, where I was delighted to find out that I didn't have to choose between the two areas of interest that I had during law school. I was able to pursue work both in their white-collar crime group or white-collar criminal defense group, as well as their government contracts group. So I really did start to see a merging of these interests. In government contracts, I did traditional government contracts work, which I'm sure we can touch on in greater detail. And in the white-collar crime group, I did you know, internal investigations, among other sorts of things. And again, I'm happy to address any questions you have about those specific practice groups as well. But ultimately, it was that experience and the experience that I had in law school and my clerkship that really informed my area of expertise and interest today. You know, in school, I did take your traditional classes like criminal procedure and evidence and trial advocacy. There weren't as many criminal classes back, you know, several decades ago like there are now at GW Law, but I did take those traditional classes, which were supplemented by what I strongly recommend every student do, which are externships. And I worked at the Justice Department, both in a unit that prosecuted cartels. I don't know if it has the same name now as it did back two decades ago. I believe it doesn't. But it prosecuted cartels, where my first assignment was working on an indictment of the FARC down in Colombia, which also has a very different kind of political nature to it than it did 20 years ago, but it was prosecuting uh, drug cartels. And then I also worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. working on criminal cases. And I also worked at the D.C. District Court for a federal judge as a judicial intern where I got to work on cases. So all of that gave me that experience, plus my coursework, plus the work for the professor, which kind of led me to the path that I was on after graduation, both through the clerkship and through my law firm. And it was really my experiences at the law firm that truly solidified my interest in anti-corruption and compliance in government procurement. That's amazing. It, it sounds further touching on government contracting. It sounds like that can mean so many different things. When I hear government contracts, I first think of the government. And then I, of course, think back to that infamous 1L class and immediately think offer, acceptance, consideration, et cetera. But what is government contracts really like? How would you explain it to a student that has never taken a course in government contracts and uh, specific things you did in private practice with government contracts? So government contracts is not your one-out contracts at all. Um, And I think that's the biggest mistaken assumption that students can make. I didn't even like my first-year contracts class, no offense to my professor at the time. Um, So I wasn't particularly interested in it. But the professor, Professor Schooner, is still at GW Law School, was so enthusiastic about it. It really was infectious. And, and I wanted to listen. And what he taught and what I now teach is that the government's a superpower. So you're not contracting with a normal contractual partner that we typically associate with the commercial marketplace. Government procurement is social change. It's policy change. The government is a huge you know, superpower of, with a huge budget. And so 
it uses the money that it spends, taxpayer dollars, to not only procure goods and services, among other things, which sounds familiar like 1L contracts, but it uses the types of contracts to actually influence and make change in policies. So for example, the government can insert clauses into contracts that require companies to enact COVID-19 policies. It can inject anti-human trafficking policies. It includes increasingly sustainable procurement or sustainability clauses that are designed to address the issue of climate change. Particularly, one of the things that it focuses on is wealth redistribution. So the government has a wide variety of policies designed to assist what are typically perceived to be kind of historically underrepresented groups of people. So it could be women-owned businesses, it could be service-disabled veteran-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses. It can be businesses or, or contracts focused on particular areas that are, are struggling, which we refer to as hub zone contracts. So truly, it provides these opportunities through the procurement process to, again, not only obtain the necessary goods and services to do the business of the United States uh, citizens, but also to enact these really important policy goals. And I, I only touched on a small portion. Government procurement is everything ranging from white-collar crime because, of course, we know that companies can get in trouble and contractors can get in trouble. So we have a lot of rules related to, to ethics and integrity. It includes things like national security. There's a big focus right now on the importance of cybersecurity for government contractors. Again, sustainability or environmental law, international law, human rights, all of these things are bundled into government contracts. And it, it, we really do touch upon almost every single practice group that you can think of when it comes to this particular area. You definitely hit on a lot of pertinent, very relevant contemporary issues. And I understand that last year you were approached with the opportunity to testify before the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. So can you explain the purpose of your testimony and looking back the impact it's made already in shaping government ethics? Absolutely. So I think for most people watching it, you were probably or they were probably attracted or their attention was grabbed by the idea that it was dealing with the opioid manufacturers because of the significant problem in the United States and other countries associated with this drug. So that was a piece of it. But the reason that I was asked to testify was related to an issue called organizational conflicts of interest. So this is a unique area in government procurement. And the issue with organizational conflicts of interest is to focus not on what we call personal conflicts of interest. So for example, if I were to be a contracting officer for the government, it would not be appropriate for me to oversee the award of a contract that included bids from, for example, a company where I might have significant stock ownership, right? You, that's a conflict of interest. That's a classic case. This is where the organization itself has a conflict of interest. And what we're concerned about is whether the other activities of a company might create conflicts of interest in a particular procurement. In this particular instance, the concern was that McKinsey and Company, one of the, if not the largest consulting firm in the world, had contracts with the FDA where it allegedly, according to the you know, House Majority Report, was advising the FDA on how to overhaul many of its processes, including processes related to the enforcement of opioid manufacturers, kind of oversight and enforcement activities. At the same time, it was advising 
those same opioid manufacturers on how to gain more business and also how to manage the FDA's enforcement processes. And indeed, according to the House Oversight Majority Report, was using its FDA experience to market itself better to its commercial clients who would be impacted by the FDA. Now, for anybody that's listening to this, their spidey sense might be tingling because that sounds like an off, a pretty big conflict of interest. And it was not just that, but they, we were staffing similar individuals on both matters. And so it really did trigger concerns about whether or not the FDA was getting the best possible advice from the company and not advice that would necessarily be more advantageous to its commercial clients. Now, again, we're only relying on the House Majority Report for these things. So I always want to say, take these things with that minor grain of salt. The organizational conflict of interest is this law that basically says that you don't want to have kind of biased advice, among other things. It's a little more complicated and much more complicated than we can talk about in the time allotted for this podcast. But the concern here is that one of the rules that government contractors have to comply with is this organizational conflict of interest rule, where they have to proactively, or at least in the, in the McKinsey contract, proactively disclose you know, situations that might even give the appearance of a conflict of interest. And here, the concern that they were basically representing two parties, the government and the private sector clients, on conflicting you know, where their interests were obviously conflicted was of serious concern and created serious issues of biased advice. And so that was what I testified on. And I focused in my testimony, not just on the nature of what the organizational conflict of interest rules cover, but also on the expectations for contractors to maintain robust ethics and compliance policies and procedures designed to reduce the risk of these OCIs ever occurring. OCIs, organizational conflict of interest, we call them OCIs. And uh, just touching further on that, what are some current issues generally in contracting and corruption? And what are some major concerns for the future that you believe the government still needs to take a more proactive approach to addressing? So I will take one quick step back and note that in response to that particular issue on organizational conflicts of interest, Congress did pass legislation seeking to amend or strengthen those rules, which is something I strongly recommended in my testimony. So I'm, I'm really pleased to see that practical impact. So that's one area, so that these types of situations don't happen again. The other areas of primary concern, and there's always a lot, there's the ones that I think that are longstanding concerns, and the biggest one impacting contractors is always going to be fraud. So that is what's referred to typically by the False Claims Act. Um, there are other ways to cover fraud, but this is the statute that's at the forefront of every government contractor's compliance checklist, which is to ensure that when it signs certification saying it's complying with the Clean Water Act, when it says it's complying with the Human Trafficking Clause, when it says that it's complying with all of the many requirements that are imposed on it, because we talked about those social policies that get injected into contracts, that it's actually doing so, because the failure to do that or to deliver goods that, that don't work or don't match the requirements of the, you know, that the government has imposed in its contract or has otherwise provided, said it's done one thing and done something else, right? All of that can create significant liability for companies under the False Claims Act, which is a wonderful practice area for students interested in this issue. We mostly see it in the healthcare space for companies that falsify documents and information related to Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE. So it's typically in the healthcare, but it's also in the government procurement space too. And the fines and penalties are in the 
billions of dollars typically a year collectively by the Justice Department. And its success is founded primarily on a very robust whistleblower bar uh, that can bring these cases, a very active whistleblower bar. So that's a really unique area in government contracts and could be the subject of its own podcast because of all the opportunities and unique aspects to, to fraud in the government. Another area that I think is getting a lot of attention right now is collusion. So the concern is that companies will engage in anti-competitive behavior that will result in higher prices to the government. And now we can also see this in the private sector too, but this is a typical type of bid rigging, price fixing type scheme covered by the Sherman Act that's per se illegal. So you don't want companies that would typically be competitors colluding with each other to fix prices in a way that would raise the prices for the government. And, and price fixing and market allocation and bid rigging are just a variety of schemes. And right now there is a task force set up or a, a division in the Justice Department referred to as the Procurement Collusion Strike Force, which has specifically been created to go after collusion in government procurement. And they've been very aggressive and active. So that's a big area. Another area is also going to be the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now, this is something that there's a lot of interest from law students in. It's a fascinating area that prohibits the bribery of, of government officials, of, of foreign government officials. It also requires companies to maintain accurate books and records and internal controls. And uh, students absolutely love it. It's very, the, the law is interesting. The cases are interesting. The opportunities it provides for travel for students that want to do jobs in this area afterwards, it's a robust. So that's always a big area for people. And then, of course, there's always the general concern associated with domestic ethics and corruption issue, ensuring that, you know, companies aren't violating or causing government officials to violate their own ethics rules and not engaging in something that could be perceived as a bribe or a gratuity. The Let's Brief It podcast has an audience base that extends far beyond the D.C. area. Let's say that somewhere out there right now um, is one out listening to this recording in perhaps South Dakota or Utah, and that student is very interested in getting exposed to uh, an experience in domestic corruption or collusion law. What advice would you give to that student? How would they be able to seek out opportunities within the field, even if they're not geographically close to the district? Yeah, or like a 2L in Baton Rouge like me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there we go. Fear not, there's plenty of opportunity. So the first thing I would say is that take a look at your curriculum and you'll want to look towards classes that could give you exposure to some of the skills and substantive information that would help you. And that might not be a ton. You might not have some of the similar classes as maybe a school that's based in, for example, Washington, D.C., where a lot of enforcement happens. But your traditional criminal procedure class will be there. Many schools still offer white-collar crime, even if it's not in Washington, D.C., evidence, securities regulation. If you have international kind of trade classes, sometimes those can be really important, too. But you'd want to take a hard look and see what your curriculum offers. But that's, to me, the smallest piece of it. There are two other ways that you can be proactive if you don't live in D.C. And the first is, does your school have a what I call like a summer extern or an externship program that you can come to DC for a semester. If you have a, a program like that, you can take advantage of. I'd highly encourage you to do that because you could go to a division of, of the Justice Department that, that handles these issues. So for example, collusion, it's the criminal antitrust division. And they actually have offices outside of the DC area too. So you could do a sat what I call like a satellite office. I'm sure that's not the term they use, but that's the one I'm using today. So they have offices outside DC that do this work. 
So doing either a summer internship or a semester long, if your school allows it, at uh, an agency that does enforcement work here is, is, is important. The second piece of it, I think, is going to be easier for you to do, and which is figure out the opportunities at your school to write a paper. So whether that is a journal note or a independent writing, if you have a class like that, or anything that allows you to write on a, a paper topic where you have fairly broad discretion to figure out what that topic will be, and then do some reading on the topics. You can subscribe to Law 360's compliance page, to its white collar page, to a government contracts page, among other resources. The FCPA blog, I'm biased, but it's also a great resource for this type of news. Follow these different types of news sources and, and stay apprised of kind of the, the cutting edge issues in this area. And then write a paper on it because you could try to publish that paper. And publishing a paper, I mean, you could, all you have to do is ask your, your faculty supervisor how to do it. They all know how to do it really does go a long way of adding something to your resume and, and demonstrating some expertise. So if you can't find those experiences naturally within your own curriculum or your location, make them for yourselves through your scholarship. The other thing I'll point out is that if there's a particular area that you're drawn to, whether again, it's you know the antitrust or it's Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or any of these other issues, you know it's really important that you find other ways to do it. And that could be things like writing a blog post. Um, many of them take student submissions. You just have to look up their writing guidelines. Most students don't even think that they're allowed to do it. You are absolutely allowed to submit a blog post. You just have to take a look at what their expectations are and look at some past, you know, past pieces. Most of them are really short. For example, at the FCPA blog, you know, it's around 500 words. That's not a lot. And so try to you know, go out and write something. And even if you don't have those classes in your curriculum, and that would be my other piece. My only final one piece of information, and I'll, and I'll stop, is reach out to practitioners. If you do write a paper, use them as for assistance in doing your work. You could also just reach out for informational interviews. So there are ways to kind of take baby steps towards it, even if you don't, you know, have a ton of activities immediately surrounding your law school. Well, Dean Tilletman, thank you so much. I learned a lot today about an area of law that I actually have not really considered before. So I thank you for bringing this to my attention and the attention of our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we'd like to thank the DC Bar Communities for hosting us. Have a great day. This episode of Let's Brief It was brought to you in part by our sponsor, the George Washington College of Professional Studies Paralegal Studies Programs. For more information, visit the link found in the description for this episode. The DC Bar Law Student Community strives to engage and support law students before you graduate and expose you to the tangible benefits of joining the DC Bar and DC Bar Communities. Curated programming allows law students to participate in substantive content programming, leadership trainings, networking with practicing attorneys in fields of interest, writing opportunities, and other activities designed to expand your legal education beyond the classroom. Make an investment in your legal career by joining the law student community. To learn more, visit us at www.dcbar.org or email communities at dcbar.org. We look forward to hearing from you.